Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you today at Hillcrest. Pastor Brad Woods right here. Give him a hand this morning. Fantastic. You're doing the heavy lifting today in more ways than one. Hey, it's great to see everybody. I bring you greetings from the mission field this morning from our friends and ministry partners. Hillcrest is all over the world, and I bring you greetings from Germany, from the Czech Republic, and from our wonderful friends also in the United Kingdom. God is up to good things in the life of those who are ours serving him on the mission field. And we have a wonderful year to look forward to as Hillcrest will be going to all three of those places uh, throughout the course of this year, ministering the gospel in church settings and seeing boys and girls, men and women come to faith in Jesus Christ. You know the best part of uh, going over the water and spending a few wonderful days is coming home, amen. Getting back to your own bed, your own home, and uh, my sweet little wife, somebody say amen this morning. That's the best part <clears throat> of all. I'm just getting too old to travel for very long without her with me. I think the older I get, the more insecure I get for some reason. I just like having her around. And so we're delighted to be back. Thank you for the privilege of allowing us to be gone for a little bit of time. It makes me a better pastor, a better citizen, more informed and uh, hopefully a better preacher. I'll let you be the judge of that. A special welcome to those of you that are with us at Spanish Trail. Love you guys, miss you. Look forward to seeing you soon. Be over there soon and very soon, bringing the gospel live and in person to you. We hope you've had a great day of worship. And to those of you that are worshiping with us online, wherever you may be this morning, we love you and we're praying for you, praying that God would do a wonderful work uh, in our midst today. If you have a Bible with you, be finding Matthew chapter 16 for a few minutes this morning, the 16th chapter of the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew. One of the best ways that really good teachers teach is by asking questions. We live in a day and time where much of education has been boiled down to the simple dissemination and memorization of facts. Here's what you need to memorize, and then I'm gonna give you a test, and the measure of success is how well you can regurgitate those facts and figures <clears throat> and give them back to me on a piece of paper. But good teachers know that among the best ways to develop students is by asking them questions and allowing them to think and to give a response so that rather than simply telling the student what they need to know, the teacher guides the student in such a way that they're able to think critically for themselves. This approach is really helpful, I think, in that when it's done well, students tend to know not only what they believe, but they know why they believe what they believe. Have you ever noticed that about Christians? Most Christians can tell you what they believe, but if you press them as to why they believe what they believe, they don't know how to answer the question. Well, it's important that you not only know what you believe, it's important that you are able to stand firm and resolute as to why you believe what you believe. One of the great ways to do that is a dialogue that involves lots of questions. It was the Greek philosopher Socrates that first popularized that approach to learning. Really, it's a form of debate. He did it back in the 5th century B.C. It's come to be known today as the Socratic method, teaching and guiding through the asking and answering of questions, and it's still used in 
many universities and many law schools even to this day to bring out the best in students. But you know, if you read the Gospels of the Lord Jesus Christ closely, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one of the things that you'll find is that Jesus did the same thing. I was teaching through the Gospel of Luke three or four years ago here in this very pulpit. And one of the things that I noticed is that Jesus tended to ask questions all the time. I took a comb and combed through the four Gospels of the New Testament recently and found that Jesus asks almost 200 questions that are recorded in his gospel ministry. And rather than calling that the Socratic method for our purposes, we're going to call that the Jesus method. Can I have an amen this morning? Because Jesus was a big believer in teaching by asking. Really what Jesus is doing with all of the questions that he tends to ask is developing disciples. That's what Jesus is about. We've been talking a lot about discipleship to begin our year this year, and this is how Jesus fundamentally developed disciples. He asked them a whole lot of questions, sometimes putting them on the spot in order to force them to think critically as to who he was, what life was really supposed to be all about. So the Jesus method involves our Lord asking some very pointed questions for the purpose of developing some very sharp disciples. And he's not asking in order that the disciples might give him information. Can I just make a statement this morning? When Jesus asks a question, it's not that he needs to know anything. Jesus is Lord. He is omniscient Lord. He knows all things. And so when Jesus asks a question, it's not to better inform him. It's to better inform us so that we can know some things that really matter in life. Now, in these weeks leading up to Easter, it's hard to believe I'm already talking about Easter. Easter is in 12 weeks. So I'm going to take these 12 Sundays leading up to Easter from those 200 questions, and I'm going to do the best I can to select 12 of them that I think they're critically important. I'm not even going to say that they're the most critically important because I'm going to leave out far more than I include, but we're going to take 12 that I think are spiritually super significant. And the first one we're going to look at today gets at the heart of really this critical subject. What are you chasing with your life? I mean, what is it that really motivates you? What is it that fires you up? What is it that really drives your life? Let's read beginning this morning, 24th verse of Matthew chapter 16. You'll know the question when we get to it. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Father, we pray that you'll minister to us and through us this morning, that we might know that we've heard from the master teacher who is the Holy Spirit. If he doesn't show up, we really are not going to see anything fruitful or productive happen here today. So we acknowledge our dependence on him and 
We ask for your presence and your power. Illuminate these words, which are not mine, but yours, that we might know you better and serve you with great enthusiasm. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody together said, amen. Now, this is a a familiar passage. It's not the first time we've talked about this passage. This passage is what I call the hinge chapter of the gospel. Everything turns from this passage in Matthew 16, everything been focused in Galilee up to this point, popularity, crowds. Now Jesus begins to work his way toward Jerusalem, and for the first time, he begins to talk seriously with his disciples about the reality of what he'd come to do, who he was, what he'd come to do. Peter had identified him correctly just a few verses earlier. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, basically, that's right. And he begins to teach them very pointedly about the cross. And in the midst of this discussion, he asked one of the most important questions, maybe the most important question raised in the Gospels. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits or loses his own soul? It was a very important question then, but would you not agree with me about how important that question is in 21st century America today, where we're driven by consumerism and we're driven by toys and we're driven so much by money, where the priority uh, for so many is placed on money and the things that money can buy. This question is posed in light of the discussion that happens immediately preceding it, where Jesus begins to teach his disciples that they now have to work their way toward Jerusalem where he will eventually suffer and die and then after three days be raised to life. It's the first time Jesus had been that pointed with these men about the reality of his suffering as a Messiah. The disciples had a really hard time processing that. And the reason that was true is because they had a faulty view of Messiah that was based on years of unbiblical tradition in the Jewish community. They viewed the Messiah, as most people did in the Jewish community around them, as this political military conqueror that was going to come in and overthrow the Roman authorities, knock Herod off of his throne, restore Israel to this place of incredible prominence, restore the glory days, the good old days as they'd been under the reigns of David and his son Solomon when nobody on planet earth had been stronger than the nation of Israel. That's what they believed Messiah was gonna do and the fact that Jesus doesn't seem to want to do that is troubling to these men, obviously so, because the first thing Peter does is grab Jesus by the arm and says, come here, Lord, right over here. And he rebukes the Lord Jesus Christ for using that kind of language. We've left everything to follow you and you can't talk like that. Peter wanted a crown without the cross, which is exactly what most people still want out of Jesus today. They want the Jesus who wears a crown, but they don't want the Jesus who died on the cross. And it's why Jesus responds with an even stronger rebuke here to Peter. Verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, adversary, adversary, for you are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of what? The things of man. 
So what Peter was unknowingly and unwittingly trying to do was get between Jesus and God's ultimate plan for Jesus, which at this point he had no clue about. And he was doing it for selfish reasons. He wanted to wear the crown with Christ without having to bear the cross of Christ. Everybody tracking with me so far, say amen. So Jesus has to make sure that Peter and the rest of the disciples understand what's most important about life. And he wants to help them to prioritize the things that they need to really be chasing after in life. Because it wasn't what the rest of the world was chasing after. He wanted to teach them the dynamic importance of pursuing eternal things first. Can I just say this morning, ambition's not all bad. It's okay to be ambitious with life. Desire to succeed in life, do well with life. There's nothing particularly wrong with that. But I think our Lord just wants to make sure that their ambition and our ambition is pointing in the right direction, that we're chasing after the right things as a matter of priority. Because Jesus hadn't come to make those boys healthy and wealthy. I don't care what you hear on Christian television. So much error being taught today. Just have enough faith, trust Jesus. He becomes this cosmic Santa Claus. As I've said before, not the king of kings. Jesus is a burger king to so many. Where you can have it your way, do whatever, just have enough faith, give God your Christmas wish list. He'll make you healthy and wealthy. You'll never get sick again your day in your life. You do it your fault. So much error being taught today. He wants them to understand that. <clears throat> I didn't come to make you healthy and wealthy. I didn't come to give you a backstage pass to the kingdom show, all access pass, or the best seats in the kingdom house or the best positions of leadership when I come into my kingdom. I mean, Jesus wants to make very clear, I'm not the means to an end in your life. Jesus wants to make it abundantly clear that he himself is the end in life. That that which we, we ought to be pursuing more than anything else in life is not the stuff, but him. We ought to be pursuing him. And would you not agree that we need this teaching today as much as those first disciples did? Maybe even more. We've been couching our preaching since the beginning of this year around the importance of Christian discipleship. And what Jesus says here has everything to do with what real discipleship actually looks like. There are three dimensions that I'd like to remind you of this morning. The first involves the call of Christ. This is a fundamental call that Jesus gives to any and every disciple. Here in verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him, skipping a few phrases, let him follow me. That's kind of the first thing he says. If you want to come after me, the first thing you have to do is follow me. Now, we'll qualify that as we go along this morning. But that's the underlying principle. If you want to belong to God, you first have to follow me. This is the fundamental call of Christ. It was the first command that he issued to the original 12 disciples there on the water's edge in the opening salvo of the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke. He goes to those fishermen, and what does he say? Follow me. That's right. First command he gives. And it's the last command he gives, the very last chapter of the Gospel of John. 
Jesus tells Peter, you quit worrying about what everybody else is doing with their life and you what? You follow me. That's right. So it's the first command he gives in the gospel. It's the last command he gives in the gospel. By following him, what does he mean? Do as I say and do as I do. Focus on me. Allow me to be the pattern of your life. And as I speak, you speak. As I do, you do. That's what it means to follow him. Now, this concept of being a Christ follower has become kind of a trendy thing today. I was reading an article out of Newsweek magazine not too, too long ago that basically indicated that studies are showing that the term Christ follower, follower of Jesus, is fast replacing the term Christian as the way a lot of evangelicals are identifying themselves. What's your religious belief? Used to be a day everybody would say, well, I'm a Christian. Now what many people are saying, maybe even most is, I follow Jesus. I'm a Christ follower. It has less of a sting attached to it, so they say. It has less of an offensive nature about it because the word Christian is often stereotyped by so many. Well, let me just say, I'm not really into spiritual or religious fads or or, or trends, but one thing I want noticed about my life is that there's no doubt that I'm actually following the Lord Jesus Christ. That true with you? Don't you want people to be able to look at you and identify you as an obvious follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? The reason that we ought to desire that is because that's the fundamental call of Christ to every person reduced down, I think, to its simplest level. Jesus says very simply, follow me. And it's very important that we be reminded of that principle today because the bottom line is that everybody follows somebody or something. Everybody. We're all on a path leading somewhere and daylight is burning and it's very important that you be conscious of whatever path it is that you're following and who you're following or what it is that you're actually following with your life because the path that you're following the person that you're following the thing that you're following whatever it may be that pathway eventually leads to a destination of some kind and let me ask you a very pointed question this morning When you arrive at whatever destination the path that you're on is taking you, where will you be? Now, you may not know how to answer that, but you ought to be able to frame it in general terms because we're all on a pathway that's leading to an inevitable somewhere, a predictable somewhere much of the time. Everybody's on a financial path here today, and the financial path that you're on is going to lead to somewhere. If you don't have a budget... If you don't plan to save, you don't plan to give, there's going to come a day of reckoning in your life. How many of you saw stories about all of the people based on the government shutdown? They didn't have a dime saved. And I know it's hard for many people to live, but did you know that the 50% of American adults, 50%, half of the American population don't have $1,000 in the bank? Man, that is a sobering figure. Well, We're all on a financial path, and that financial path is going to take us somewhere. What about relationally? Man, I can look at people. I've been a pastor for a long time. It's not my first rodeo. You can look at people making relational decisions that are not biblical, are not healthy, and you can almost predict 20 years from now, here's exactly where that person is going to be, and it's going to be a world of brokenness because they're on a path. 
of their own making, and it's going to lead somewhere. And spiritual paths lead to spiritual destinations. Those that have a careless, take it or leave it approach to the Bible, to prayer, to the spiritual disciplines, to the church, 20, 25 years from now, you're going to be at an inevitable destination, spiritually dry and vacuous. But then others take spiritual disciplines very seriously, and with each passing year, they grow closer to the Lord and they grow stronger because they're following Jesus rather than following their own impulses. So the reality is we're all on a destination. Who are you following and where is this pathway going to take you in 5, 10, 15 years? It's an important question to know and to evaluate because nobody wants to wake up in their 50s or 60s in which they'd followed a different path in their 20s and 30s. It was a commercial. I couldn't find it. I wanted to show it this morning because it's got a father and it's got a song singing in the background that basically has the words to which, if I knew then what I know now, how different life would be. And I've known people who come near the end of their life wanting to go back and live it all over again, knowing what they know now. Here's the sobering reality. You can't go back. You can't go back. So be careful because many people follow the wrong people, listen to the wrong counsel, the wrong instincts, and they wake up one day resentful and bitter because they've got a trail of broken relationship, broken finances, broken dreams. And you know what I see happen a lot of times? In the midst of that brokenness, people play the God card and they get all ticked off at God because it's all God's fault. And God had nothing to do with it. God sent you every sign in the world. You heard every sermon in the world. You had every family member who was trying to help you and to understand that you were going down a path that leads to nowhere. And one right after another, you chose to reject that counsel. You chose to reject the Bible. You chose to reject spiritual leadership. It's not God's deal. But we need to blame somebody, and God often is the man that takes the fall. Isn't that right? Why is God doing this to me? But the reality is... Where we are today was determined long ago by the decisions that we made with our life. Who we chose to follow, who we chose to live life with, do life together with. That's why it's so important to make sure that you're following the right path, or in this case, following the right leader. Because here's the good news. You can't go back. Y'all with me say amen. Can't go back. The good news is you can start over. Amen. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how much water is under the bridge. Thank God that we have a God of grace, a God of second chances, who willingly pick us up and turn us around and dust us off and set us on a proper pathway that leads to fruitful destinations. But we have to choose to lock in with Jesus Christ because he alone has the power to change the direction of your life. You have to decide, as the old song says, you have to decide to follow Jesus. And once you do, can I just say, it's the greatest adventure of your life. It'll be the greatest adventure of your life, but before you make an emotional decision to follow Jesus, Jesus is very careful here to caution us to stop, first of all, and evaluate, secondly, the cost of the call. There's the call of Christ, and then there's the cost of the call. And wisdom demands a proper valuation of the cost. Jesus taught that. Who goes out to battle without first estimating the power of his enemies so that he knows how to properly strategize? Or who would build a tower without first counting the cost? Make sure they don't go bankrupt in the process. 
No, Jesus says here that whoever would resolve to follow Jesus, there's this all-important qualification that you cannot miss. It's verse 24. Now we fill in the gaps. If anyone would come after me, let him what? Say it out loud. Say it again. Deny himself and what? Say it out loud. Take up his cross and follow me. Two very important qualifications there. Four, verse 25, whoever would save his life will what? Lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Find it. Now, this is why Jesus rebukes Peter. Why did Jesus get thee behind me, Satan? You're my adversary now. You've not got in mind the things of God, but the things of man. This is why Jesus rebukes Peter, because Peter still hadn't gotten this all-important concept, this first principle in following Jesus. And you know what the first principle of following Jesus is? Self-denial. Self-denial. There is no discipleship without denying yourself. It does not exist. Self-denial is the first step in following after Jesus Christ. And it's why he rebukes Peter. He hadn't got it yet. Self-denial is critically important. And what does that mean? A willingness to give up everything to follow Jesus. Now, how in your face is that? That's what it means. Self-denial means self-denial, not a little bit of self-denial. Not self-denial here, but not over here. Everybody tracking with me? Either you deny self or you don't deny self. And so it's a willingness. It doesn't mean you're going to have to give up everything, but there's a willingness to give up everything. If I have to make a choice between Jesus and, guess who's going to win? Jesus is going to win. That goes in order for me to follow after and obey Jesus Christ. The word deny here is a word that means to renounce or to completely disown, to disavow someone and to separate yourself from something or someone so that you you don't have any connection with them anymore. In fact, it's ironic. What's the irony here? Jesus is teaching self-denial to the big mouth who just a few months later is going to do what to Jesus? He's going to not deny himself. He's going to deny Jesus. It's the same word. He's going to disavow Jesus. He's going to renounce Jesus. He's going to distance himself from Jesus. And that which Peter does at the end of the earthly life of the Lord Jesus Christ is now halfway through the ministry of Jesus Christ is what Jesus is telling Peter. This is what you've got to do with yourself. Renounce yourself. Separate yourself from yourself so that I and I alone am Lord. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. You know what that means? You give up the right of running your own life. You give up your right of calling your own shots, establishing your own agenda, telling the Lord, and deciding for yourself what you will and will not do, where you will and will not go, what you will and will not say, how you will and will not live, you give up the right to call those shots for yourself. That's what it means to follow Jesus. You give up. All to Jesus, what does the old song say? All to Jesus I surrender. That's necessary. 
in order to follow Jesus as Lord. Because you know what the problem is? Two people can't both be Lord at the same time. Somebody say amen. Two people can't be Lord at the same time. There's only one that can be Lord. Either you're going to be Lord or Jesus is going to be Lord, but both can't be Lord at the same time. Christianity started as a give up everything movement. I mean, the Bible says those first disciples gave up everything in order to follow Jesus. That's what it says. And now, over the centuries, we've kind of turned that in to where Christianity now is not a give up everything movement. Christianity has become a get what you want movement. We've made it all about us. The emphasis isn't on God in many churches anymore. The emphasis is on the individual. It's not on how you can best glorify God with your life. The emphasis now in so many circles in Christianity is on what God can do for you. And God can do a lot for you, but that's not supposed to be what's priority. Priority is not me. My life doesn't matter. What matters is the glory of God. Two people can't be Lord at the same time. And the disciple of Jesus is willing to yield not only his rights, but if it's necessary, even his or her very life, there's a willingness to die for the sake of Christ. That's that second qualification. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and what? Take up his cross. That's an instrument of execution. And follow me. Willingly lay down his or her life. There's a physical aspect to that. Man, I'm telling you, I was in Prague, the Czech Republic, and right in the center of the Prague old town is this enormous statue of John Hus. Many of you probably never heard of John Hus. He was about a generation before Martin Luther. Everybody's heard of Martin Luther, but Luther was quick to say the burning at the stake of John Hus is really what started the Protestant Reformation. John Hus was burned at the stake at the Council of Constance in 1415 for daring to preach the gospel in the native Czech tongue rather than just reciting the Latin mass that nobody could understand because nobody spoke Latin except the clergy. They burned him at the stake. The name Hus means goose in German. How'd you like to have a pastor named Johnny, Brother Johnny Goose? And right before he died, he said, you know what? They may cook this goose. That's what he said. But a swan will flower in the aftermath. And it did, and his name was Martin Luther, who they wanted to burn at the stake, and he was willing to die. The Lord spared him, but many people have had to lay down their life because of their conscience spiritually as it related to following after Jesus Christ. But what every one of us have to do, probably nobody in this room is gonna have to die because of what they believe about Jesus. Makes me thankful to live in the United States of America. That's a good place for an amen. But I'm willing to, I'm willing to. But every one of us has to be willing to crucify the flesh. We all have to be willing to die to self, every one of us. That's the first step in following. That's what it means to deny self, to put a silver stake in your flesh, relinquish control, <clears throat> die to self. The apostle Paul said it, I die every day. I die daily, crucifying the flesh in order that Christ may be exalted 
in and through my life. This is what Jesus means. Whosoever shall seek to save his life or to save his life will lose it in the eternal nature of things. You maintain your life, life all about you. Jimmy Locke is Lord. When this life is over, you will die eternally. But whoever loses his life voluntarily, in other words, lays down his life, becomes a living sacrifice, lays their life down on the altar, puts a silver stake in the flesh in order that Christ might be exalted as Lord. Whoever loses his life, that's the one who what? Finds real life, eternal life, and the abundant, peaceful, overflowing, energetic, enthusiastic life that only Jesus Christ can give. And that's why the question is so important. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world? Zero. Nothing. The Bible says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To die is profit for the believer. Now, and forevermore. And that's why there's no real discipleship apart from self-denial. The first step in Christian discipleship is a willingness to give up everything in order to follow Christ. But having said that, don't let that strike fear in your heart. Because I don't want you to be like the rich young ruler. When he was confronted with this reality, you remember how he responded, right? He turned his back to Jesus. And the Bible said he went away how? Sad, because he had great wealth. He didn't understand there is no profit in the wealth, but he couldn't turn his back on the wealth. He couldn't not be Lord of his own life. And so the Bible says he turned and he went away sad because he thought the cost of following Jesus was too high. You gotta be careful with that because there are, thirdly, the consequences to consider. There is the call of Christ, there is the cost of the call, there are consequences to consider. And what you have to consider is that even though the cost of following Jesus is significant, no question about it, the consequences of rejecting Jesus in order to chase after your own dreams, in order to follow after your own pleasure and your own wealth and your own desires, even more sobering. Because a day of reckoning, Jesus says here in verse 27, is coming for every single one of us. Verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Most importantly, he'll repay each person for what he has done with Jesus. Have you surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus? Have you denied, to, uh, you, uh, have you denied yourself in order to follow him? Or have you rejected him? And this brings even greater clarity to the question. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his own soul? It's the last part of that question that really reminds us of the eternal consequences of rejecting Jesus. The soul, the eternal part of your life is at stake. Jesus is making this incredible effort to teach us that it's far better today to surrender your own safety and your own security and your own comfort and your own possessions in order to follow him than to come to the end of your life only to realize you'd prioritize the wrong things and now you've lost everything. 
everything. I can't help but think of Solomon. Solomon was the king of Israel, son of David. Maybe the wealthiest man who ever lived. He had every creature comfort imaginable. And yet he comes to the end of his life only to realize he'd spent most of his life chasing after the wrong things. In the book of Ecclesiastes, he looks back, Solomon does, and he reminds us that there wasn't a soul on the planet who could even come close to what he'd accomplished in his life, not one. He was the greatest man on the planet. And he starts to revisit his life as an old man there in chapter two of Ecclesiastes and he begins to make a list. He begins to give a litany of everything that he'd enjoyed and everything that he'd accomplished with his life. He said, I cheered my body with wine. I never ran out of wine. I never ran out of good food. He had more gold and silver stash than anybody alive on the planet, more money that he could count. He built houses, he built the temple of the living God there in Jerusalem, the temple of Solomon. He built gardens, he built parks, he'd amassed flocks and herds, he had wives and concubines by the dozen. He had an army at his disposal, had the greatest navy in the history of the nation of Israel. And there at the end, he honestly confesses, I kept my heart from no pleasure whatsoever. Had the whole world at my doorstep. And yet, at a point when his life was mostly behind him, he was in the winter of his days. This man known for his wisdom, a man who'd gained pretty much the whole world, looks behind him with absolute clarity, and he realized he hadn't been so wise with much of his life. Here's his evaluation, Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had extended in doing it. And behold, everything was vanity, a striving after the wind. You know what Solomon was saying there as I look back on my annals of my life, seeing everything I've built, everything I enjoyed, everything I'd done with my life, none of it mattered. The game was nearly over, and when the game of life is over, can I just say that everything is going to get put back in the box? All the pieces of your life are just going to go back in the box, and the box is going to be handed to somebody else. And that's why he calls it a chasing after the wind, man. You can't catch the wind. Vanity of vanities, that's the way Ecclesiastes starts. Vanity of vanities, emptiness of emptiness, all is vanity, meaningless. A chasing after the wind. You know what you call a dead man or a dead woman who's gained the whole world with their life? You call them dead, that's what you call them. And even worse, if they die apart from Jesus Christ, they're eternally dead. They may have achieved an incredible measure of success, gained the whole world, 
But for what? You lose your soul in the process. You can gain everything there is to gain in this world and you can still lose at life because you forever lost what's eternal as a part of your life and that's your very soul. Friend, I don't know what it is you're chasing after with your life, but I do know this. The only thing worth pursuing, the only thing that really matters is Jesus Christ and his plan and purpose for your life. The Bible says there is coming a day when Jesus is coming, and when he comes, the Scripture says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that we may give an account of the things done while in the body, the priorities of our life, and on that day it will be revealed who was Lord and who was not. The only thing that will be to your eternal gain and mine, the only thing that can save your eternal soul is Jesus Christ and what he's done for you through his death on the cross. It's a critical question, and we do well to confront it today. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul. This is God's eternal word, and let all who agree say amen this morning.